Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you need additional help on how to do that, we have a Next Steps page on our website that you can check out. Also, if you haven't been able to attend a service at any one of our campuses recently and participate in the time of giving, you can give anytime you want online by visiting our Give page or by texting to give. We hope that God speaks to you in this sermon. Take care. Well, today we wrap up this series. It's been so good uh, to just sit with this one conversation that Jesus had with this guy who comes up to him and says, you're going to have to simplify the code for us. I mean, we've got all these rules, all these expectations that God has laid on us. What's the greatest command? And Jesus said, well, I'll give you two. Uh, Love the Lord your God with everything you are. And then secondly, love your neighbor as you, as you love yourself. And then Jesus said, all the law, all the prophets, everything that was taught in the Old Testament is wrapped up in these commands. Uh, love is the heartbeat of everything that God uh, expects from us. When we love him completely, and then we love each other unconditionally, we naturally keep the other commands that God has uh, for us. And when we don't love each other, it really doesn't matter what other religious things we do. Uh, like the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, love is it. Love's the epitome. I can do all these other things, but if I don't love, it just, just a bunch of noise. So when Jesus comes to earth, he, uh, he tells people that the reason he came is that because God the Father loves them. Uh, you remember what he told Nicodemus. He said, this is how God showed his love Uh, to us. He gave us his only uh, son. And during his public ministry, Jesus demonstrated this love and affection that God has for people, even in just the tenderness of how Jesus uh, dealt with certain people. Uh, I remember that man with leprosy that Jesus healed. And you know, leprosy was just such an ugly disease. And they still don't know how you catch leprosy. Uh, it's really not contagious, they don't think. Uh, but boy, back then, it, people were really afraid they were going to get this disease. So even if it was a family member, you would send them away. And they would go out to the edge of the village, and that's where they would live. So at the edge of every large uh, Jewish village back then, there was a little, there was a small group of people who, the, their only commonality was that they had leprosy. And uh, so Jesus was entering one of those villages that one day, and uh, he goes up and he, he's going to heal this guy with leprosy, but the way he does it is that he says he reached out and touched him. 
And that's such a beautiful thing because Jesus didn't have to touch him in order to heal him. But it's like God knew that this guy hadn't been touched for a long time. And so he, he, he reaches out and touch him. I was thinking about the, the other woman. Uh, the, the, uh, she was healthy, but her son had just died, and she was a widow, and Jesus meets her on the day of her son's funeral. And uh, of course, back then, if you didn't have a husband to take care of you, then your son took care of you. And if, then if you didn't have a son to take care of you, you were in dire straits. And uh, so there she's burying her son, and Luke tells us that Jesus had compassion for her. And he, he went up, and as he spoke, her son came back to life. And what a loving, uh, loving thing for Jesus to do. And Jesus was also really showing love for his disciples, just in how patient he was with these knuckleheads. Uh, and he just loved them. He said, you know, I don't, I don't even call you my servants anymore. I don't call you my students. I call you my friends. Um, you guys are my friends. And on that final dinner, Jesus said, here's what I'm going to do for you. And he said, this is how I'm going to define my love for you. I'm going to do it tomorrow in a way that you're not expecting. Uh, because no one demonstrates greater love than the person who lays down their life for their friends. Now, the Apostle John was at that dinner when Jesus said that. And we get the feeling when we're, we read through John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 that walks us through all the things that Jesus said and did at that final dinner, we kind of get the idea that Jesus was a little bit nervous that these guys were gonna stay unified after he wasn't there to referee uh, between them. There were some strong personalities in that group, and just even earlier that day, they'd been bickering about who was, uh, who was the greatest. So over and over that night at dinner, he, he said, love each other, love one another. Um, a new command, he says, I'm giving you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that's how I want you to love each other. And this is how all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that's a fascinating thing because Jesus could have said, this is how all people will know that you're my disciples if you uh, have really good doctrine or if you obey the Bible. And people can see you're obeying the Bible. Um, but Jesus didn't say that. He could have said, this is how everybody will know that you're a Christian, is if you go out and you do a lot of really cool stuff for people out there in the world. And not that there's anything wrong with any of that, but that's not what Jesus said that night. He said, this is how people will know that you're my disciples. It's your love for each other that will identify you as my followers, that you really are who you claim to be. Um, as if when we don't love each other inside the church, then what we do outside the church really doesn't matter because the world can see the hypocrisy in that. You know, I think whenever someone visits one of our gatherings, uh, if there's a sense that we really do love each other, that's really attractional, uh, especially to a person. You know, the world is looking to be loved and to be in a community where they can express love. So if they come and there's love among us, uh, they can picture themselves in that group. And, but if, they, if the opposite is true and they, they see that there's love really lacking, then it really doesn't matter how entertaining our services are or how good our cookies are at our community group. Um, love's the measuring stick. 
And the Pharisees, they had a problem with this. They never could wrap their brains around uh, Christ's teaching on love. Uh, you, you heard about this group, the Pharisees? Have you? Yeah, they were, they were the back to the Bible bunch. And, uh, uh, and they, they were attempting to live lives of pure, unwavering adherence to the Old Testament law. And uh, they worked hard at it. And they had a, their motive was righteousness, but their motive also was nas- a national uh, release because see, they believed they believe that, that God had brought the Romans upon them as punishment um, because of Jewish disobedience to Scripture. So their way of solving that was like, let's get everybody on the same page, let's get everybody obeying Scripture, and God will see that and give us our, our nation back. So the Pharisees really saw themselves as the conscience of the nation. And, uh, but, and that's why they reacted so much to Jesus in public, because they rejected Jesus as a rabbi that they thought people should be uh, listening to, especially those that thought Jesus might be Messiah, especially that talk about him being somehow part of God or God in flesh. And this all was rattling around back then. And so they pushed back really hard on this because they saw things in Jesus' words and Jesus' lifestyle that they just could not stomach, starting with how Jesus associated himself with sinful people. Because the Pharisees were rigid. They were unforgiving. They were unable to love you if you weren't obeying the rules. So they didn't want that adulterous woman forgiven of her sins. They wanted to stone her. They saw her as a cancer on the local society. Um, if you were sick, but it was Sabbath, they didn't want you healed on Sabbath, no matter how sick you were, because it's Sabbath, and you can't, uh, you, you, you know, they, their highest goal was to obey all the rules, and Jesus' highest goal was love. To Jesus, love was the highest human achievement. To, to a Pharisee, um, keeping the rules was the highest achievement. Being right was way more important than showing love. But there's just those times when showing love is just the right thing to do and we work out those details later. Um, you can be right, but you can be totally wrong about the way that you're right, which just makes you wrong. Maybe you've had an experience like that with a with a relative or a friend that, that was right in offering correction, but the way they offered the correction was so harsh and so unloving that it completely clouded the whole issue of even what they were hoping uh, to accomplish. Maybe you've even seen Christians act like that. Have you ever seen a Christian who was just too harsh? Have you? Boy, I, I have. When I was a boy, um, my dad uh, accepted uh, the call to pastor uh, Pueblo First Assembly of God, Pueblo, Colorado. And, uh, and uh, so we moved to, to Pueblo. But First Assembly had, uh, had been kind of limping along for years. Uh, they, they had once been a strong church, but they had suffered a terrible split, a schism in the church where... Uh, maybe 30% of the church split away and started another church. And the issue wasn't doctrine. The issue was, and it's crazy, but the pastor's daughter got pregnant. And about a third of that church 
wanted him to push her out on the street. Because, get this, they felt that the testimony of the church was being compromised if there was a pastor whose daughter was pregnant in the church. So, so really, these people kind of gave the pastor an ultimatum. Either do that, or you can resign from the church, and we can get a pastor who knows how to raise his kids. And so they brought it to a vote, and the church voted. And the majority of the church said, you guys are, what is wrong with you? But uh, after that vote, a third of the church split away, and then they started another Assembly of God church, which was such a great testimony to the community. So here we arrive years later, and there's Central Assembly of God and First Assembly of God. Well, Central Assembly of God was being pastored by my dad's childhood friend, Jim, and Jim and my dad immediately started getting together and plotting how they're going to merge these two churches back together and make everybody get along. And that's my dad. I mean, he's a lover, not a fighter. And, and they pulled it off. Um, they, they, they got the boards together. They got the leadership together. They both started preaching about love and forgiveness and love and more love. And wouldn't it be great if we could love our brothers and sisters? And everybody's like, yes, amen. He goes, how about our brothers and sisters over at Central Assembly? <laughs> wow. You're talking about real life loving each other. And it, they did it, and both the churches came back together, and they voted to merge back together. They sold both properties, and then they had, guess what, plenty of money, and they bought a beautiful piece of property and built a beautiful church, which they renamed Pueblo Christian Center, and my dad and Jim were co-pastors of that church. And I, as a, young, as a youngster, got to see love unify what... Uh, what had been torn apart. And, uh, and, and that was just a, a beautiful thing. And the church went into revival because the city saw that and said, all right, if that's who you guys are, I'd like to be part of uh, that church. Now, I wish that was true across the board with all churches, but there are many today who really think that it's the church's job to uphold that moral standard. And, uh, and the society all around us is degenerating, so we gotta raise this standard of holiness. And not refuse, and you know, not have any compromise. We refuse that. But uh, not that holiness is a bad idea, but there's a way of going about that. And I really think Jesus would disagree if our methodology is not loving. Because the primary mission of a church is not to raise a standard of holiness. The primary mission of the church is to love the community and, uh, and to love God enthusiastically and to love each other with pure hearts and let that be the way that a watching world will be attracted uh, to Jesus. When our neighbors see us gathering in groups small and large, where they can tell we're not all alike. Uh, we don't all agree on all those issues out there. But when we come together, we are glued together by our common love for Jesus. And he said, now you guys uh, are, are wanting, I want you to love each other. You know, I, I think the East Bay already has plenty of groups where everybody in the group agrees with each other. And if they don't agree, they just go join another club. We've got enough of those. The churches need to not be like this. If a church is like that where everyone agrees, then we're no different than other clubs that are doing good things in the community. It's the church's job for people who have little in common. It's like they say, you can't choose your family members. Well, guess what? You can't choose your family members within the church. And, uh, and you may be super easy to love, but... 
A healthy church is when people that are difficult to love find a way. And it's like that original band of disciples. We don't get the idea that these guys were a lot alike. Um, there were a couple of guys in this group that were very, very different. Uh, let me just point this out. Do you know this guy, Matthew, the, the disciple? What was his former profession? He was a tax collector, which means he's a collaborator with the Romans, which means that guys like Simon the Zealot, who was also one of the disciples, zealots were a, a, a radical group of anarchists they were nationalistic anarchists who believed that the way to overthrow Rome was killing one Roman at a time. So the zealots carried knives around in their clothing, and if they could get a Roman collaborator in a back alley, um, they were glad to do it, and they felt they were doing it to the glory of God. And so Jesus picks a guy from that group and a tax collector to be in the same little church. And he does that on purpose. And we have no, there's no evidence that that, that I bet they struggled, but, but, but the, the scriptural evidence is they worked it out. You know, I think about Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary is uh, possessed by demons when she meets Christ, so she's definitely a social outcast. Jesus pulls her into that inner circle and releases her. Uh, and, but then he also pulls in Joanna, who's the wife of Cusa, and Cusa is the manager of Herod's household, so she's a very wealthy, very well-put-together woman. These two women would have never crossed paths had it not been for Jesus, but Jesus puts them in the same group and says, I need you guys to run the women's ministries, um, and, uh, and of course, you need to love each other and know each other, and, and we have every reason to believe uh, they did. That, that's a miracle. You know, the greatest miracles in the church is not when someone is healed of cancer. The greatest miracle in the church is when people get along. On that final night to Jesus, uh, together, Jesus prayed about this. Uh, he says in John 17, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I want their bond with each other to be as strong as the bond of the Trinity. And maybe they, may they be one with us so the world will believe you sent me. The world is gonna believe my message when they see them loving each other. And I think Jesus is crazy to trust us to do that. When the world witnesses that people that are very different I have, I have, I'm friends with these two different couples in our church, and they're dear friends, not only with Brenda and I, but with each other. But these two couples couldn't be more different. I mean, one couple is really conservative Republican, the other couple, the exact opposite of that. <laughs> but these two couples love each other. I mean, they hang out. And, and, and you know what, what, what's really cool is their love for Jesus just supersedes any political opinion or they just don't go there with each other. Instead, they talk about how much they're caring for the poor and what other good works they can do out there and, and, and then when they can get together uh, again. Um, it's a powerful thing when people in church love each other like that. Our world is so divided. So when people see us not acting like that. You know, the Apostle John gave us five 
books. And all five of his books have this common theme of love. Uh, and First uh, John 3, John writes, this is what Christ was telling us all along, he says. We should love one another. We know we have passed from death to life because of our love that we have for each other. Our whole life was leading us in selfish directions. Our, uh, but we passed from the death of that into a life that is life when we learned how to love Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when we learned how to love each other. And the way we love each other now, that proves to us that we really are Christ's followers. John goes on to say, anyone who doesn't love remains in death. When we love each other, we prove that we've entered into eternal life. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, our sisters. Now, John isn't just talking about us dying for each other. He's talking about us dying to our selfishness so that we can serve each other by daily doing what it takes to meet the needs of someone else within the body of Christ. There's this woman in Pleasanton um, who is in recovery, a Christian woman, uh, and she was, she was just a few months into her sobriety when she had to go out of town for several weeks on a business trip. And she was all alone in this other town. And uh, every night to get to the hotel, she walked past this bar. And it was so tempting for her to go in. And no one would have known. But she had made this decision for sobriety. But she was all alone. And so finally she called home to her sponsor, who's also a Christian. And she said, man, I just... I, I, don't, I don't know, I feel like I'm going to fail. And the sponsor got online and found a group right there in that neighborhood that she could go meet. And she said, well, now you have a choice. You can go to the group, you can go to the bar. And I'm going to be checking back with you to see what you did. And sure enough, she went to group. Uh, at the group, she met uh, a woman that was further along in her recovery uh, named Kay. And Kay said, hey, listen, while you're in town, I'm going to be your buddy. So here's my cell number and call day or night. And I'm going to be strength for you when you're feeling weak. Well, it wasn't a day or so, but what she called Kay and said, you said to call. And Kay says, where are you right now? She says, well, I'm at the hotel. Good, stay there. And she came and picked her up, took her out to dinner. They had a blast. Then for 30 days in a row, Kay spent every evening with this gal until it was time for her to come back home to where she had good Christian um, support among other people that were recovering. So now, this weekend is her 10th year of sobriety. And every year on this weekend, she picks up the phone and calls Kay and says, I, th I thank God for you. And thank you for saving my life. And, uh, and, and, and that's what John is saying, is when we lay down our life, I'm sure it was inconvenient for 30 days in a row to, to hang out with the same person that you just met. But she said, you're valuable, and I'm going to do that. And John takes it further. He says it's even about material possessions. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how could he say that the love of God is inside of him? Dear children, let's not love just with our words, but with, with our stuff. 
This is how we know we belong to the truth. This is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. This is how you sleep so well at night after making some sacrifices for, for someone else. Hmm. Um, Rebecca, one of our pastor's wives, heard what I was preaching about and she, uh, she chimed in and she said, you know, I know what it's like to be loved by the church. And uh, she, uh, she sent some pages that she photographed from her journal from last year. She said, Pastor, here's what I was writing in my journal last April. Um, Heavenly Father, she writes, it has been such a burdensome season of financial difficulty after financial difficulty. Our garage door has been broken for months. Our dryer broke. Our van's transmission died. The forerunner's brakes, battery, the alternator went out. John's truck broke down on the freeway, needing a new alternator, battery, new tires, and we owe $6,000 in taxes. However, she writes, I'm trusting you for your hand of protection over us, for I trust and know that we will not always be in this tough spot. I pray for the job for me that lines up with my passions and giftings. I pray protection over Noah and helping him make the adjustment. Thank you for the giving hearts and ones I don't even know who keep showing up. And then she starts listing $1,600 from her Cornerstone community group. A $100 gift card, a paid scholarships for camp. Her parents uh, chipped in. Ed and Tanya gave her $1,000. $900 from a random person. She didn't even know who it is. And she said, then the church gave us $5,000 to fix the van. Then she writes to the Lord, you are all around us. Isn't that a beautiful statement? All these people came around her, but her interpretation of it was, God was around her. You were all around us, bringing me comfort and lightening my load. You know, that's what we do when we love each other. Uh, like her Cornerstone family loved her. You, you, you brought comfort. You became the hands and feet of Jesus. You were God in the flesh. God in the flesh. That's actually a theological word. It's, it's a word that describes Jesus. It's incarnation. Uh, in flesh. And uh, Jesus was God in the flesh. But God becoming flesh didn't stop when Jesus ascended to the Father. Uh, he assigned us to be God in the flesh. So when we meet each other's needs like that, we are the body of Christ. And when the Bible calls us the body of Christ, that's not a metaphor. The Bible doesn't say you are symbolically the body of Christ. You know, I'm talking about a symbol. Not, you're not really the body of Christ. No, the Bible just says you're the body of Christ. You're the hands of Christ. You're the, the voice of Christ. You have the mind of Christ in your community. Your strategy is Christ's strategy for the East Bay. Your actions are God's actions and God's presence within the church. You are his hands. You are his feet. Your resources, those are just God's resources that he's uh, passing through your hands. As God once acted in Christ, God is now acting in you. Years ago, um, there was a couple in our church, Terry and Tracy, and uh, uh, Terry had a very successful local business, but then he got really sick for a really long time, and he couldn't, um, he couldn't, and uh, the business just, you know, and the bills keep coming in, as those of you that are, have your own business know, and nobody does your work for you, and so um, their house was already falling apart before um, Terry died. But when he died, uh, it got really bad. And she, she couldn't pay the, she didn't, she was raising the kids, small kids. 
And, uh, but there was a group of Cornerstone men, uh, a Bible study, who said, we gotta do something. And so they went over to her house and they inventoried everything that needed to be done on that house. And then they got a group of men together and they just kept going over there every night after work and on the weekends and until that house was ready to roll. And then another one of the guys is a financial genius and he got all the bills together and started calling the banks and the credit cards and, and he restructured the whole thing so that they didn't lose their house. And then they, they came up with a financial plan where they were gonna fix up the house and she could sell it. It was a very nice property and she could sell it and then she would be okay, which these men did for her with no financial return at all, just the joy of doing it. And these guys are busy guys. I mean, they, they could have done something else with their time, but they loved it so much that when Tracy was okay, they found another widow in our church, also raising her kids, and they helped her. And then they found another one and another one and another one, and word got out that there was this group of guys that would help you if you were a widow. And they ended up forming a nonprofit and... Now it's a huge ministry. It's called Missing Man. But it was founded by three guys in a Bible study that go to the church. But they had the heart of Christ. They had the mind of Christ. They saw themselves as the missing man for these kids who didn't have a dad anymore and for this woman who needed men she could trust pregnant pause in our society, men she could trust, Christian men, who even when the kids were playing around the house, she could trust those men to be a good guy and to do the right thing. And uh, man, this ministry, I'm just so proud to be attached to this ministry. And there's lots of stuff like that that you guys are already doing. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but we gotta do more. We gotta love each other even more. There's people in this church that, that, that it's gonna be up to you to find out what they need, but man, once you find out what they need, just assume it's your job. Um, to, and, and the needs are different. You know, my daughter-in-law, she found out what we were preaching. And Sarah, and she said, Dad, you know my story. And I go, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, but what, what are you saying? And she, she sent me an email documenting how this church changed her life. When Sarah first started coming to Cornerstone, she didn't know the Lord. She was far from the Lord. And the only reason she came, here's what happened. She moved and she got a new roommate and a new apartment. She was really loving it. And these, these, these girls that lived there were just the coolest. And they were already just being so cool to her. They're helping her move in. And they go, oh, yeah, and on Sundays we go to Cornerstone. So you can ride with me if you want or we'll meet you there. And she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't go to church. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what we do. That's kind of our little thing we do. We all go to church together and then we go out. So you're gonna, you'll go with us. So she's like, all right. So she started coming to Cornerstone. A year of that. And she's being baptized and following after. And, and, and she's being baptized by, a, by a, a woman just a little older than her uh, who's got her own family, very busy. But, but uh, it was Carrie. And Carrie said, oh, now what we're going to do with you, Sarah, we're going to disciple you. She's like, I have no idea what that means. She goes, I'm going to teach you everything that your mama should have taught you about how to serve God. We're gonna go through the Bible, we're gonna go, and you're gonna become a woman of God. And she's like, all right. And she said, it was just amazing how this really busy person just fit me into her schedule and just taught me everything I needed. She goes, next thing I know, I'm on a missions trip with a cornerstone group to Haiti. 
And she goes, I'm just like, I'm going on this trip and I'm gonna go help poor people. She gets on the trip, she gets to Haiti. They get a phone call, her dad passed away back here. So she's just sobbing and the group gets around her and the leaders are putting together a flight to get her back home. And, but then the group came around her and she said, We're, I'm crying, then they're crying. She goes, then they're asking me questions about my dad and next thing you know, I'm telling them stories that are really touching or really funny. She goes, we just sat up all night and talked about my dad. And she goes, by the time it came time for me to leave them and come home, I didn't want to come home, so I just stayed in Haiti with my Christian family. And she said, Dad, you know, Christian family. That, I didn't, wasn't raised like that. She goes, got a great grandmother. I got a great aunt. But she said, my mom, my mom doesn't know how to love. And she definitely didn't know how to love me. And my dad's gone now. And uh, she said, my mom, the healthier I get emotionally and spiritually, it's like it, 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 my mom just gets more and more mean and angry toward me. And to the point where her mom last summer sent her an email and just said, I don't want to be your mom. I don't want to be associated with you anymore. And she's just like, all right. But she said, remember then how my Christian family, everybody came around me and just said, you know, we love you. You're valuable to us. Don't believe these lies that you're a terrible daughter or uh, uh, you're wonderful. And we're your family. Sarah said, I realized that I had never been taught even to, to love myself. She was, I just was always a disappointment. She was, I just realized that I just assumed that I was a disappointment. And she said, when you're preaching, love God. She goes, I get loving God, but when you're preaching, love your neighbor as you love yourself. She says, I'm actually learning how to do both things at the same time. And she says, powerful. She says, a powerful thing for me to love myself and to even set boundaries on someone who's hating, throwing hatred at me and just saying, nope, that's a lie. And she said, it's, it's the church that has helped me dig out of that pit. And you know, I think Sarah makes a great point. Uh, if a person doesn't love themselves, it's a little hard for them to hear preaching that they're supposed to love others like they love themselves because it's like, well, I don't know how to do that. It's like when the flight attendant tells you, you know, if the oxygen masks drop, put yours on first before you try to help anybody else. Love yourself first and then love others. Sometimes a person struggles to love themselves not because their family didn't love them, but because they went out and they were the prodigal. They went out and did some terrible things. And so that shame creates this terrible self-talk, even for Christians who say, well, I'm glad I'm saved and I hope I make it to heaven, but really I'm still, you know, not good. And I think it's so important for us as a church to, to be there for people, to remind them that, no, Jesus has made you good. Jesus has made, has made you, you're wonderful in Christ. You're, you're lovable in Christ, and you can have a great, a great future regardless of your past. And over time, that grace in a healthy church helps us redefine ourselves. Uh, and then with a healthier view of ourselves, we have a healthier view of others, and we receive to the point where we start, we start saying, well, I want to give out. I want to give. I want to share. Uh, and we naturally do. We reach out 
as we are valued, then we value others. As we are sacrificed for, we make sacrifices for others. Dear friends, John says, let us love one another. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. One more thought and then we're gonna go. You cannot know God if you don't give and receive love to people. By loving each other, we get to know God in a deeper way, in a way we can only know if we are receiving and giving love. John says, no one's ever really seen God, but if we love each other, we see God. If we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. When we love each other, it's like an electrical connection is made, and then the the electricity of love can flow through that circuit. When we love each other, the love of God flows through our hands to somebody else, and that somebody else is right here in this church. Now, another sermons will talk about going out and loving the world and going far away and loving people that are far away. That's a great sermon, but that's not this sermon. This sermon is, we have to have a love for one another within our own church. And I'll just be honest with you. You can't have that if you just come once in a while on a Sunday. You can't have that if you don't join a community group of some sort. You can't have that if you don't enter into Christian ministry with us. Because there's no flow. There's just listening to facts that touch your heart and then you leave and no one knows you. I encourage you this year to be willing to be known around here even though that messes with your schedule and even though it might mess with your heart a little bit. I encourage you because that's where we discover, really where we discover God is in community with one another. Hmm. Cornerstone, let's love each other this week. Go to the people that you already love and love them a little bit more this week and find somebody new, and we'll help you if you need, that needs something that you have within this church and give it to them. Let's show love to the level that even the world will notice And then when they notice, as Jesus says, they're gonna want to be part of us. You got it? You gonna do it? All right, let me pray for you. Father, I pray first for the person who struggles to love themselves for whatever reason. And I ask you to reveal your love for them to them in such an overwhelming way that they have no choice but to love themselves because you love them and why would they argue with you? And Lord, I pray for the person who feels too busy to get involved in this church. They know this is a great church, but they're at the fringes and they're there by choice because they're busy. The Bay Area disease is called busyness. It keeps us isolated from one another. Lord, I pray that they would be willing to sacrifice some other event or some other thing they do in order to enter into Christian community. And I pray that in that community, they would, they would discover what it is to, to see God in a new way, hanging out with people that may be even different than them. 
And Lord, I pray that we would be a church where we accept one another and love one another and we leave all those disagreements outside and we let the world argue and bicker about everything. But when we come in here, we, we are glued together by our love for one another. A tax collector and a zealot. A social outcast and someone who's very well connected. All in the same church. Give us the love of Christ for one another, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Love you. Thank you.